Cinephiles, audiophiles, ladies and germs, welcome to the Film Cult Podcast. Tonight, a man from Mission of Burma, the Trinary System, Alloy Orchestra, it's Roger Clark Miller. Roger, how are things? Uh, Overall, pretty good, given the condition of the world. It improved quite a bit about two weeks ago or three weeks ago. Have you been staying busy? uh, Well, have you been staying busy this entire time? Yes, in fact. I've been very busy. Uh, just when COVID hit, my art installation had just gone up at the Brattleboro Art Museum. Uh, there's a really good virtual link of it floating around on my website. Uh, and literally, it went up for a day, and then it closed. I had spent like two years working on this. And, uh, and then they later, you know, people could come in in small groups, and they made a really nice virtual gallery. But... So I was working like crazy on that. Then I had these concerts coming up for string quartet and my guitar music uh, with a lot of loops. And they all, just as they were about to happen, the wall came up. And so I haven't had a concert, you know, since. But because I'm a gig worker, I'm getting money from the government. So I'm, I think, you know, if I'm getting money from the government, I'm going to work hard. You know, if they're paying me, they're going to get something for it. You know, and that's... I'm composing the hell out of the world, or my life, anyway. Well, you you made a film not that long ago, and you you used to say you were never going to make a film. <laughs> After making that, do you feel like you have this new urge to do a little bit more film work? Not particularly. <laughs> <laughs> it was exactly as I anticipated it would be. Um, the reason I've never made films is that it takes years to to make a film, to really make a film. You know, you, you got to get money, and you got to this and that, then you edit, you shoot, you got to wait for the right day. Whereas when you're in a band, you can compose a song that afternoon and rehearse it that night and play it at a show the next day. It's like it's, it's a very immediate thing. And so the Davis Square Symphony, where I filmed uh, traffic patterns in Davis Square in Somerville, where I lived for some years, um, first I shot it with a camera that wasn't good enough so I had to reshoot and I shot four seasons so that took an entire year that shooting went down the tubes I got a high def camera and then once I did that I had to edit it for the music because uh, when a car comes by a string chord happens uh, it was very it was incredibly time consuming and my girlfriend who I've lived with for many years she was often saying, are you sure you should be doing this, Roger? <laughs> but, I mean, she's very supportive of me. But it just took so much time. But it did get me into my first art installation at the Brailleboro Art Museum. And I believe that it was a really interesting film in a non-traditional film fashion. I mean, like, there's no storyline. It's more like just, can you be interested in this? And if you are, you know, the people that get it really, really like it. When you go to put music to silent films with the Alloy Orchestra, how do you really go and approach that? Well, that's a, you know, obviously a completely different situation, whereas uh, the symphony is hyper-abstract. It's almost like a John, coming from a John Cage point of view. Whereas when Alloy Orchestra, and there's three of us, and we compose collectively, which is kind of interesting. Um, when we have a new film, we watch it once, think about the type of sounds that would be fit for it, and then, we, then we're in the studio, the two percussionists in one room, one plays accordion, one plays clarinet, and I'm in the other room with a keyboard, you know, where I have string sounds and piano sounds and whatnot. 
and I'm operating the computer. So we watch the first scene and we improvise into the computer. And if, if that was a good improvisation, we go on to the next scene. And we just go scene by scene like that. And then we go back and I perfect the harmonics on the keyboard player and they perfect who hits the drum beat without hitting the other guy in the head with a drumstick, you know, that kind of stuff. Uh, so it's, that's, a whole, that's a very, <clears throat> it's a really quite interesting way to compose. And, you know, I've done normal films too. Like I'm, mm -hmm. a, I'm a composer. And uh, I've had like four films that have been at Sundance that were documentaries. And that type of composing is completely different. Uh, in that composing, you're working with somebody else telling you what to do, like the director. In the case of Ally Orchestra, the directors are all long since dead. So no one tells us what to do because they're silent film. And the music supports the words and the sound, you know, the, the talking in the film and the sound design. But in the silent films, there's none of that. There's no talking and there's no sound design. So we are all the sound. And so in a way, there's both more freedom and more responsibility when you do a silent film. Do you find it easier or harder to score a documentary because of <laughs> the real life nature of the subject that's at hand? Um, <clears throat> no, it's, it's, it's neither here nor there. The problem there in the documentaries is that I'm working with, with other people and, you know, they may not like the direction I'm doing. So then I go back and revise it. And then later on, they decide the edit's going to be like seven minutes long, you know, not seven minutes, but seven seconds longer. And I've already made the music. So it ends at just the right place. And I've got to figure out how to, now that I've made this contained piece of music, how to stretch it seven seconds without warping it somehow, you know, so it still sounds natural. Whereas when we're doing the silent film stuff, we get the film, it's all done. There's no editor that, you know, it's, it was done in 1929 or 1928 or 27. So, I mean, sorry. Yeah, yeah. So there's no chance of re-editing and the, and the director's not going to give us shit. You know? mm -hmm. <laughs> I mean, when you're working with a good documentary film and you, and you have a way of working with the editors, and the directors, um, it's, that's also a magical thing. It's a completely different type of thing, though, than silent, pure silent film company. Last year, 2020, also saw, I guess, the death of Mission of Burma. Uh, did it feel like it was a long time coming or kind of just, uh, we just need to make this statement and it just needs to essentially be done now? Because you hadn't toured for four years at that point. Yeah, I mean, our last show was in 2015. As far as we were concerned, we had stopped in 2015. We had talked about it. We decided we weren't going to play anymore unless something really weird came up. And the, the official announcement last year was an accident. It really, we, we didn't have, there was never an official announcement from the band. You know, the chance after we stopped playing in 2015, the chance that we'd ever play again uh, was pretty much zero. <laughs> but... Uh, you know, we didn't want to make a big deal out of it. So last year's announcement that the official death of Burma is like, it meant nothing to us. And we kind of apologized to the world that people thought it was something special. Did you find anything new in the reunion? Revisiting these songs, did you have a new appreciation for them? Or even a new appreciation for the amount of influence that it had 
and the amount of artists that were coming out to see these reunion shows? Um, it's really, a, you know, it's really hard to judge from our perspective, like who we've influenced or who we haven't. We read about it and we think, well, if they wrote that, it's probably true. <laughs> That's about as far as, you know, there is this, there's this running truth and it's kind of a joke that if you're so close to something, sometimes you can't see it. And I don't, bands that claim to be influenced by us, I have no idea what they're even referring to. And then somebody else could point it out and I could go, oh, I, I get it. <laughs> but we don't go around thinking about that. Um, we're just happy that people are interested in us. Even currently, they're still interested. And we're, that's like, what an honor, you know. Um, as far as playing the songs, in the second round, we were a much more consistent band. Uh, like, night after night, we would be good. Whereas in the earlier period, it was like one night would be terrible, one night would be great. But the primary, uh, the essence of Mission of Burma was created in that first phase. So the second period of the band was we weren't recreating the the band. We were just continuing what the, these got, we had started 20 years earlier. So it was sort of a different kind of uh, creative action. But I found that uh, I really, really enjoyed performing. And I, I, my guitar playing got a lot better. Uh, it's such that we, you know, we played for like for 15, 14 years or something in the second time period, only for four in the first. But, you know, we didn't play nearly as much. But I would, I've developed these guitar ways of playing like certain fate and Einstein's day that I really, really liked. And then I go, God, I, and then I put on verses and I go, I can't wait to hear what I, that way that I did it. And then I, I didn't do it on that record because I didn't develop it till the second phase of the band, like Mach 2. And so that, that was kind of oddly satisfying to see that some of the stuff I liked most about the songs weren't even in the first round. They were in the second round, which meant that we were still, you know, developing. Well, did you notice that you were adding new elements all the time throughout the, the entire reunion process? Or once you kind of got the groove on, on a song, once you got reunited, you kind of kept it that way the entire time until the end? Right. Um, I mean, most of the songs stayed pretty much the same, but it's just like, it's mostly nuanced stuff, like the, this little kind of picky thing I would do on the guitar and say, God, that, that proves that I'm a cool guitarist. All I got to do is listen to verses and it's not on there, you know? So, <laughs> so I did get better, but it, I mean, it didn't change the entire nature of the song. I mean, you would recognize it as being the same song. It's mo mostly like nuance, nuance stuff. What would you say that you learned the most from, from playing different venues over the years? Is there a certain thing when you walk into a room you really want to correct right away in terms of sound? Or is there anything that, you, that you're actively thinking about when you step into a room to play it each and every time? Um, every time was a little different and the same. I mean, we played in the, in the second incarnation of the band, yeah, we played anywhere from, I mean, we played in uh, Columbus, Missouri, and there was like 50 people at most. Maybe there was like 30. And this, this was like when we were supposed to be famous and shit. And, uh, and then we'd play festivals where there'd be 20,000 people. So we, it really ran the gamut 
I think for us, the, the, the perfect size venue is like 500, 500 seats, like the Bowery Ballroom in New York City, uh, Paradise in Boston. There's a lot of clubs like that, like a 500-seat club is, a, is about as big as I like it to be for me to feel like I'm really connecting with everybody. When you're playing in front of 20,000 people, A, you know that at least 2,000 of those people are just worried about getting their beer. <laughs> and, and, but if you have 500, they're all more likely to be really paying attention because they're only there for that reason. And there's a, there's a more of a communal vibe to it, I think. You know, and you can't tell, like some nights after like the first, thir- I remember one that we played in New York City, after 30 seconds, I knew it was going to be the best concert we ever played. And it was. It was like, we were just so, we were so good that the next time we played in Boston, I was depressed. But really, the next night in Boston was really, really good. It just wasn't quite as, you know, you just want it to always be the best possible. It's funny. I want to take you way back now. Growing up, would you say that it was easy to find the kinds of art that you were looking for? Or did you essentially have to go create the art that you actually wanted? Um, First of all, I moved to Boston in 1978. I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. So to me, I grew up in Ann Arbor, Michigan. That's like a university town. And in, I, I was in ninth grade in the summer of love in psychedelia. So, and I was in 12th grade when the Beatles hit. So I was that tar- target population that moved through all those phases. And, uh, you know, I loved all the British invasion stuff. And then when, you know, the Who started showing up and the Beals started getting kind of wacky and then the whole psychedelic thing just exploded. I was right there with it. Um, and in Ann Arbor, you had, it was like one of the seats of revolution, like the MC5. I saw the MC5 like 20 times in Ann Arbor. Iggy Pop went to my high school. He's four years older than me. I only saw them twice because you had to pay to see them. Would you always see the MC5 for free? Uh, and you know, all the bands would come through. You know, I saw The Mother's Invention. I saw Pink Floyd on the Soft Full Secrets tour. I saw Jimi Hendrix on his very first tour by accident. I had tickets to see the Yardbirds, and they broke up, and the replacement was Jimi Hendrix, who I hadn't heard yet because Purple Haze had just come out. And, uh, you know, I, I was in the club called The Fifth Dimension that I used to do psychedelic lettering for. Uh, and, uh, you know, I was like, 30 feet away from the stage. And then Jimi Hendrix walked out, who I'd never, I maybe seen one picture of him before. Like, this was literally, this was all new information to everybody in that room. And he walked out smoking a cigarette with his left hand, because he's a left-hander, and playing a raga feedback solo when he walked out of the dressing room, which was behind the stage. And he just walked out of stage doing this feedback solo while smoking a cigarette. And everybody in that room knew they were fucked completely. Like, we all have to start over. <laughs> it, was, it was so profound. <clears throat> I heard that Ron Ashton was at that concert, too, later. He's older than me, but I've since played with him briefly in Disrael Monster. So, and, you know, you saw the MC5, you saw the revolution happening. So it was, it was a really good place to grow up when you're in high school. You know, it was, like, really fucking cool. And then... Uh, 11th grade, my first band that I wrote, I mean, I was, I was playing in bands starting when I was in ninth grade, 
and my brother, with my brothers, who were two years younger, they were in seventh grade, and we were doing yard birds, kinks. We worked on Help, I'm a Rock by the Mothers of Invention, you know, all sorts of, you know, like, really 13-foot elevator stuff. And they were in seventh grade, and I was in ninth grade, so that's pretty good. But it took me till 11th grade to internalize the psychedelic experience. And my first band, Sprout and Lair, uh, the, we recorded an album essentially at the end of my 12th grade called With Magnetic Fields Disrupted, which has since been released by SST and then a much better version, World and Sound, a German label, really excellent version that they released. And that was all me and my two brothers and a trumpet player, guitar, bass, drums, and trumpet. Uh, it was very Sid Barrett influenced and early Soft Machine, like the first Soft Machine album. Uh, very dreamlike, uh, very psychedelic, and uh, that was that was when I found my voice. Like literally, in, in March 1969, Sprout and Lair started, and in February 1969, I was writing Jimi Hendrix and Cream knockoffs for my band Factory, and then all of a sudden in March, I stopped writing knockoffs and I started writing my own music. It was, you know, I mean, so. The Sprout and Lair album's a little bit naive and there's some kind of silly elements to it, but you can hear, like, there's a song on there called Up that when I played it on the radio in Boston in 1982, the guy said, that sounds like Mission of Burma. <laughs> and I go, well, maybe, I guess it does. <laughs> yeah. so, so in that respect, I was incredibly lucky to have grown up where I grew up. Did you always prefer to to play on the piano and and write things on the piano even from an early age, or were you or, or did that not come until a little bit later after you had already started messing around with the guitar? The latter, but I I can explain it. Like you know, when I was six, you know, in first grade, I started taking piano lessons because what people did in my family, and I I really I wanted to take piano lessons. I was really interested in it. But by the time Six Gave was coming around the Beatles hit, I was like, what am I doing with this stupid classical piano music? All I want to do is be in the, you know, <laughs> be in the Beatles. <laughs> you know, when you're in sixth grade and you're playing your tennis rackets, you know, with your brothers and shit. Uh, and then in seventh grade, I, my brothers and I all started picking up guitars. And I, I didn't want to keep playing piano, but thank God my mom made me do it because... It got me better, and I, I got into Bela Bartok. My new teacher uh, taught me some Bela Bartok, and I love Bela Bartok. I still play, still play some of those pieces. And so when Psychedelia, or even before Psychedelia, do a pre-extended, like, you know, My Generation, stuff like that, which wasn't really psychedelic, um, I thought piano was just like, it's just a stupid instrument. It's just for, you know, who wants to play Mozart when you can play, you know, My Generation by the Who. And I was a bass player at that point. And then The Doors, you know, Pink Floyd, and all of a sudden the groups that I liked had keyboards in them. And God damn it, I could figure those parts out, and I could figure out Kink's riffs, like God Get the First Plane Home. And I just picked it out on the piano. I said, yeah, that's just the G7 chord. So I started... I rejected piano, moved entirely to guitar and bass, and then came back. But I already had, you know, like seven years of, or six years of piano lessons. So I'd already absorbed a lot of stuff. And I played French horn in the orchestra in high school, junior high school. So all that classical kind of stuff that I absorbed, 
I was able to like bring it into the rock world kind of, and that's why Sprout and Layer has this, uh, has some elements that aren't typically associated with rock music. And uh, my dad heard our interest in this new kind of psychedelic rock music that would be, you know, far out sounds. And my dad had played piano as a kid. And he said, you should go, you should go see the University of Michigan Music School, with a pretty good music school there. They have new music nights. And so we'd get stoned in the afternoon and see the MC5, and then we'd smoke dope and we'd go here like Stockhausen and Luciano Berrio and shit. And it, so it all started to blur together in our minds, uh, particularly in my mind, I think. So I, it's, it, sometimes I couldn't tell which was which almost. And so we would make, you know, when Sid Barrett's his guitar playing was more like Stockhausen as a rocker, you know, just making sounds, that really appealed to all of us and, and me immensely. When did your interest in the visual arts come to be? Well, you know, I always, just like any kid, I drew and I just, for some reason, kept doing it. You know, in like, I think in seventh grade, I mostly drew guitars endlessly on my math papers, like three pickup guitars, two pickup guitars. You know, you're allowed to do that when you're in seventh grade. But I kept drawing and then in, around the same time that Sprout and Lair started, where I kind of found my voice, I, I developed a drawing at the exact same time, in fact, in which I blamed on weed, but that's not really the whole reason. You know, I had to be of the right age. But it was part of the psychedelic experience. But I, I, I developed a style of artwork that you would immediately recognize that this was the style. And there's a bunch of those drawings in the, uh, uh, the German reissue of With Magnetic Fields Disrupted and but I never considered myself to really be an artist. I just drew and I'd, sometimes I'd paint. It wasn't until after the first period of Burma, like in the late, in like the mid 90s, that I started doing the Max Ernst rubbing frittage uh, drawing kind of stuff. But well, when I was at music school, which I was there a couple times, different places, I was a, a dropout. I dropped out of college four times. It's, that's a, a record, I think, you know. <laughs> Would you say that you <clears throat> actively wanted to learn all that you could just to be able to throw it all away in, in, in the musical sense? I mean, I, I, I like researching and finding new stuff out. Um, the reason I would drop out of music school was like, you know, my family is academic. Like my dad was a professor, my older brother and sister are professors. And I didn't really want to go that route. So I thought, you know, if I'm in music school, I'll just become a professor. So I dropped out and within three years after my last dropout, I was in Mission of Burma. So I had made the right choice. You know, it's either being a professor in a university or being in Mission of Burma. Well, I'm going to choose Mission of Burma you know, on a day of the week. Uh, though now, you know, like I really, I, my concerts are performing, like at Tufts University, New England Conservatory, stuff like that. So. Uh, you know, my classical, my orchestral music. Uh, yeah. Sorry. Would you say the trinary system is your primary focus at the moment? Or is it like, are you juggling a few things here and there over the next little bit? I'm doing a lot of juggling. Uh, trinary system was supposed to have recorded an album last June. But that got nuked, you know, like everything did. And so, I mean, Trinary System won't have rehearsed for a year and a half by the time we get as 
if we even can start rehearsing in September. Uh, so actually, trinary system is not a high priority for me only because I can't do anything about it. I mean, we released a couple of tracks, Easter Island, and uh, just recently the song Just Like That. And I'm just pleased that people are interested in it and are still paying attention to us. And I love the band. I mean, the band is really amazing. We're really mobile. Anybody can do, you know, I trust the other players. They'll tell me when I'm doing something stupid and they'll kick my ass. And I'll say, you're right. <laughs> and, you know, I, I don't want to work with people that, won't, that are afraid to kick my ass. You know, they should kick my ass. Hopefully not very much because mostly I'm, I'm right. But, but, you know, when I'm not right, I should be, you know, corrected, you know. In it, are you excited to get back out there live? Have you been enjoying or even thinking about what a lot of musicians have been doing in these live streams? Have you thought of anything about that? Have you thought about what your live show will look like when you come back? Or do you think that we might not be coming back for a while? Well, we will come back, but I, I have like four different threads. Um, you know, I can't wait to play with Trinary System again because there's no matter what my interests are, there is nothing like being on stage in a rock band when you trust the other guys you're with and you know it's going to be good music. That's just, there's nothing to replace that. Um, on the other hand, I actually did a virtual concert in October. I actually, I did them track by track and then I did some visuals so it wasn't a complete concert, but they were live performances of this. Of the, and that's my uh, dream interpretations for solo electric guitar ensemble. Uh, it's a, a really excellent uh, virtual concert. You can find it somewhere on my website. Uh, and this setup which was part of my uh, concerts that got COVIDed last March. You know, I've done a lot of work with loops over the course of my life, like tape loops in Mission of Burma, but also I did the loops in my maximum electric piano work where I had the digital delay. And I have, I've got this really excellent looper called the Boomerang where I can get three or four loops going at the same time, change them, pitch shift them, make them go backwards. So, and then I have three lap steel guitars on legs, uh, one of them which I have tuned to a unison E, like a Glenn Bronca type of thing. The two others are prepared with alligator clips and bolts, so they're more like prepared piano. So I have 12 prepared piano strings, this massive unison thing which can be warped out of tune, and then I have a strat around the neck. And then I have like a lot of sound-altering devices, more than I use in Burma or a trinary system, because there it's more about, in, the, in those rock bands, it's more about the physicality and you're going up the mic and you're jumping around. Here I'm sitting in a chair and I'm reading music and the score says, hit the fuzz tone, change the loop, and now play this note that be prepared to play on the other guitar in five seconds. You know? So it's a different category and all the music is organized by dreams. So it's very surreal and the compositions range from like four to eight minutes long. And I did... There is a virtual concert of that that I did in October under that title. It's, uh, it was really successful, really well received. Made me very happy. Is there any instruments that you've always been incredibly fascinated by and that you've wanted to pick up? Or have you picked them up and, and tried them out? Well, mostly I'm a realist. Uh, and I, I realize that there's only so much time available. Even if I was 21, there's still, and I'm a little older than 21. But, you know, I am a bass player. I'm still a really good bass player, electric bass player. I, people tell me I'm good on the guitar. Uh, 
I'm a, definitely a pretty good keyboard player, <laughs> you know. So there's three completely different things. And then I can still, you know, I played French horn in junior high school. I was first chair in both the concert band and the concert orchestra with, you know, like conductors and all that shit. Um, and, but the, after that, French horn is a really difficult instrument and they're really expensive, but my brother had played cornet, so it was a beat-up cornet around my house, and I still play cornet. I played it on Burma albums before. The song New Nails on Versus has some really, really excellent cornet playing by myself. By me. I mean, it's excellent in the sense that it's kind of absurd, but really fits the piece. You know, a real trumpet player would go, well, that's, I'm not sure that's good playing, but that's not the point of it. Uh, so honestly, that's it. I mean, if I was really going to study another instrument, it might be cello. Uh, but I don't have, I mean, I'm, I'm a drummer also, actually. I mean, I've played drum kit many times. I played percussion all the time. Uh, my friend Michael Brillo, who's currently in Birdsong to the Mesozoic, he said, because he's produced a lot of my soundtracks and my records, and he said that if it's basically what glues my music together is the rhythms. And that maybe I'm just a drummer who plays melodic instruments. I don't know. <laughs> That's a possibility. <laughs> well, Roger, I want to thank you so much for coming on here today. It really means a lot to me. And I think everybody needs to check out all of your stuff. Uh, we can find everything on rogerclarkmiller.com, right? Yeah, there's links to everything there. There's the movie there, Davis Core Symphony. It talks about my modified vinyl. There's a link to the virtual concert of the dream interpretations for solo electric guitar ensemble. There's links to Trinary System, Mission to Burma, and a disc there's a discography that's, you know, it's like reading an epic. <laughs> <laughs> and it's all fantastic. So th thank you again, Roger, for coming on. Thank you very much. I, I appreciate you taking the time for me. Of course. Thank you. Thank you for listening. And this concludes our broadcast day. Yeah.